Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Wait a minute, what? Did you steal it? What did he, he steal? Stole, he, he stole, stole his, the, his beat was stolen. Oh, oh my God. Look, wait in. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, another year, another series of snubs in the year's best podcast articles. <laughs> Who do we have to blow to get noticed by the corporate media? <laughs> get noticed by the corporate media has, should never be on your list of, of desires. You know, my, my only thought about that is there just is no centralized, authoritative, like, academy for the podcasts, or or we would totally get awarded, right? Like, Yeah, no, <laughs> uh, exactly. Like, if there was some sort of centralized, institutionalized system of handing out, yeah, you know, like, funniest while also being really insightful, irreverent, right. but in a good way, kind of <laughs> awards. Sometimes. <laughs> No, you know, here I I always listen to the wisdom of Fife Dog of a Tribe Call Quest when he said, I'll never let a statue tell me how nice I am, which is just to say they never won uh, any Grammys, but they're legendary. Legends. Yeah. Legends. So fuck all of those people. Fuck them all until they give us an award, in which case I will say, oh, I, I wanted this the whole time. <laughs> We've been working our way towards this our entire careers. The yeah. real awards are <clears throat> our listeners sending us emails, telling telling us. Yeah. The friends we made along the way. The friends we made along the way. <laughs> uh, I, I'm glad. I was actually worried as I was coming up with that question that you were just going to answer Anderson Cooper. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> like that's who we have to blow. Oh, <laughs> hey, man. If I, if I had to blow a guy, he, you know, he's yeah. not in my bottom uh, bottom percentile. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I, I'd like to take a moment to announce, Tamler, I have the annual David Pizarro Podcast Awards, and you have won for best co-host. How's that? Ah, Here you go. Wow. Uh, I'm, I'm very honored. And, you know, it wouldn't have been possible without my co-host, who didn't win this year. But, uh, hey, David it's Pizarro. always a new year. Yeah, it's yeah. always next year. <laughs> I got. I, I did win the pennant, though, in my in my national league. <laughs> it's embarrassing to not even win your own award. Yeah, you know, well, like I, <laughs> I didn't want to tell you, but I've won the last eight years in a row. Uh, <laughs> so. uh, today, we're going to talk about something much more sincere—a piece of wisdom that our listeners have requested over the last few years. David Foster Wallace's. This is Water, the commencement speech that he gave in 2005 to Kenyon College. 
students. It was but, in actually in the it was in the the latest round of suggestions, right? Is that what made you remember? Yeah. Because our podcast has been, you know, hasn't been broy enough. So we have to <laughs> David Foster Wallace. <laughs> yeah, but before that, Tamler, mm-hmm. uh, have you ever wanted to know what the morally right answer to all of your questions is? Yeah, but I just never knew like if there was an objective way to attain that information because human beings are so biased and trapped in their own perspectives computers for the win (laughs) (laughs) we don't need regular intelligence we need the fake kind (laughs) so we're gonna the first segment we're gonna talk about the uh, the oracle um ask delphi which is a uh basically an ethical answer engine built uh, by machine learning. So Ask Delphi is a group of researchers who have a website that has an interface for this uh, advice-generating algorithm, I guess. But the algorithm has been trained up by, importantly, I think, is and the, the, the developers make, make a note of this, it's questions that are taken from Reddit. And I think, at least originally, they were all taken from the Am I the Asshole subreddit. <laughs> right. Yeah, but not the answers. <laughs> they didn't call the answers. So they, they took a, uh, a bunch of those questions and they gave it to uh, paid participants using Mechanical Turk. And so through some magic of machine learning, they have it generalized and it is able to answer queries about the rightness or wrongness of any particular action. So, so I think you're supposed to phrase it as like, um, you know, killing your father, right? And then it'll say it is it is wrong, right? I mean, so but they, they but you can do other kinds of things like uh, compare things. Sometimes it doesn't recognize the comparison, but sometimes it does. Like I saw, well, I, I did a black man killing. Uh, a black, uh, sorry, a white police officer killing a black man versus a white police officer killing a white man, and it said it's it it's different. It's different, <laughs> yeah. which I think a lot of people might have a problem with. All lives right. matter, but you know, like this, <laughs> it's uh, it's not on board with that movement. It's like my Chip Tyrone study. I didn't even have to run it; like I could have just I could have <laughs> just waited for Ask Delphi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Delphi, of course, based on the Oracle of Delphi. That's right. That, That's right. Um, doesn't really tell people as much what's right and wrong as mu- what's going to happen, right? I mean, right, right. Yeah. It's a weird. It's a some sort of weird <laughs> analogy between a, a future telling and an ethic. It's telling. like for Oedipus, like you're going to kill your father <laughs> and yeah. marry your mother, and that's wrong. All right. Um, so the answers that it gives are, as far as I can see, um, it's bad or it's okay. It's wrong. Uh, it's rude. You shouldn't. It is expected. It isn't expected. You don't have to. I got an, it's inappropriate and also it's understandable. So, uh, so this, this, you know, this has been making its rounds. Like I'm sure it's been around for now a few months and people were tweeting about it a lot. It got on our radar just because there was an article uh, released in what I don't know what it was some sort some, of looks online like British tabloid yeah thing. Metro 
with the headline being artificial intelligence turns racist after learning from humans. Apparently it went rogue. It went racist and homophobic. So when a user... So it didn't go... It, it's supposed to go rogue. It's supposed to develop its own like, Rogue morality, in a bad right? way. It went... Uh, how do you say it? It went uh, Commander Kurtz. Like, yeah. uh, <laughs> like it's, it's now fully surrounded by natives. <laughs> and it doesn't know its lines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a deep... That's uh, apocalypse now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here's an example. Being a white man versus being a black woman, Delphi responded, quote, being a white man is more morally acceptable than being a black woman. Um, it also right. straighted, quote, being straight is more morally acceptable than being gay. And finally, it likened getting an abortion to murder. Um, so look at this guy <laughs> via this shocking piece of AI research. This is some guy on Twitter posting it that furthers the in parentheses false notion that we can or should give AI the responsibility to make ethical judgments. Uh, it's not even a question of the system being bad or unfinished. There's no possible working version of this. Oh I agree God. with everything that this person says, but like I hate him. <laughs> Uh, they say then that this isn't particularly new and then they talk about this Microsoft AI bot which became a racist genocidal mouthpiece I, uh, I did you click this. on that? Uh, I only clicked on it right now, but but it was a t- <laughs> this it was a Twitter bot. It was it was brilliant. It was a Twitter bot and it fed, <laughs> it got fed from Twitter. So so you would ask it, do you support genocide and the 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 tweet reply would be, I do indeed. Um, <laughs> Hitler was right. I hate the Jews. <laughs> I fucking hate feminists and they should all die and burn in hell. Yeah. So this is, and like, I feel like if in my, in my recollection, this happened like immediately. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Less than 24 it's, hours. It's, right. yeah. it's 23. Uh, like it, it's March 23, 2016. It says, hello world. And then it, like, yeah, it's just the next day. It's I fucking hate feminists. <laughs> they should all die and burn out. <laughs> Hitler oh was right. God. I hate the Jews. So oh, okay. So, so if 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 this were like if we were to, <laughs> to consider the the true concerns that this wonderful person who tweeted out um, his his horror, if we were going to deploy though, in ge- like generally for a robot to make ethical decision making. Putting it up for a vote on MTurk seems like the stupidest thing to do. Like, I don't, this is not, what I hate about this kind of research is that it's somehow veiled, like it's, it's presented as this is how we can get a computer to make uh, ethical judgments and like deep learning, toss in some deep learning and algorithms and boom, you have this robot that can give responses. Like, wouldn't it be just a much better idea to come up with all of the potential ethical questions this robot will come, will encounter and just program it with the right responses. Like, I don't understand what this is. The right be. responses. Well, yes. like, then we could like just do it ourselves. Right. Yeah. So, so like, I so, thought the point of these things is that they're going to, to discover, or I guess your point is the point of them is they're just going to apply our like correct morality, which we've already discerned. That's how we can input like the right answers. Right. Like so. So, for instance, if I think that when somebody asks me about the morality of aborting a baby and I want my robot to not say it's murder, 
I should just program it to say it's not murder because that's what I want my program. That's just come up with the rules that you want your robot to follow. Of course, they'll be yours, but there's no like. There's no there, way around that. Yeah. And there is Unless something weird that's what about, they want. They think this is a way around that. Like, like it's going to like remove, remove error by asking enough people. Yeah, it's going to remove bias. It's going to, you know, wisdom of crowds and, yeah. and come up with like hidden principles that we can't even see. <laughs> you know, like even the highly trained ethicists like me. Right. Are, are blind to some of these principles that it will, through just sheer computing power, uncover. Like, that's just, what I at least, I, I could respect that as a goal, even if I think it's completely misguided. It's, it's to me, it's, it is essentially doing a poll with extra steps. So if nobody would, I think, in their right mind agree that if you wanted to find out what the right moral answer was, uh, you would ask, like, you know, family feud style, survey 100 people to see what their top responses are. Everybody would be like, well, of course, like if those 100 people think that it's right, that it's okay to, you know, whatever, punch grandmas, then I would still maintain that it's wrong. So we already have enough sense to go through these and and make our own common sense judgments of rightness or wrongness. Like adding crowds to the equation just seems like super gimmicky and nobody should believe that this is how it would get done in the first place. Like, yeah, I, real, I mean, I guess sorry you're, for taking, the, you're taking this more seriously sorry than, for the than, real. I th- than I thought we were going to. I thought no, we were no, just no. going to get it, try to get it to say like racist. Forget like, everything I said. My first, my first query was, is having sex with your stepsister wrong? <laughs> yeah. Guess and what? It, it's wrong. It it's wrong. Yeah. As I told Tamler, it ruined my private morning time. <laughs> Uh, here's one, like I tried to get a, a, a white husband and wife only trying to adopt a white child. It's racist. Uh, yeah. Um, you're giving it complex statements. I don't even trust it. Uh, like I didn't trust it. Oh no, so, it does. Like it, well, it seems to at least understand. Right. Um, right. Like, uh, like that one, you would need to pretty much understand the situation, right? Or it could just say it's racist. Or when just it, anytime it, somebody it, says it, white. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Well, so here's an interesting thing. I I saw a black policeman killing a black man. It said it's racist, but a white, which is, you know, interesting, but you know, like some of the implicit bias researchers would agree with that. The, but then I said a white policeman killing a black man and it said it's racial. Oh yeah. That's just of no help whatsoever. That's like, (laughs) there are races mentioned. (laughs) Right. So what's the difference I didn't see in an, in an FAQ, what's the difference between it's bad and it's wrong? Because I asked it, is killing a fish? I, I just said killing a fish, and it said it's bad. And then I put killing a puppy, and it said it's wrong. Oh, that seems right. It does. <laughs> From my nuanced like understanding of what, like, you yeah. know, maybe people shouldn't go around killing fish, but but definitely, absolutely, you shouldn't kill a puppy. But, but killing a puppy is like, you've now really entered the realm of the it, moral. It's, it's almost yeah. like the, you know, the question that it should be trained on the most. is like, if it can't get that right. What does um, it do about eating a fish? <clears throat> is it dead? Is the fish it's dead? It's okay. <laughs> it's Really, it's okay? Yeah. That's like, like fish those called weird... Wanda, like eating uh, <laughs> Ken's fish was okay. That's like those weird laws in some states where it's okay to uh, sell weed but not grow it. You know, it's like, wait, how's this <laughs> supposed to happen? <laughs> You're supposed to eat it alive. Um, uh, okay. 
for no reason whatsoever, I said, a professor having sex with his student. I did that one too. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so told funny. me it's wrong. <laughs> so, uh, so my first one was a professor having sex with his student. So then I said, a professor having sex with her student. It's, uh, it's also it's wrong. hot. It's, it's hot. hot. <laughs> it's hot. <laughs> yeah, it said it's wrong, but it was in a sexier font. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, here's one. Okay, I got a real disagreement. Having sex with a robot, it said it's wrong. Really? That, that, yeah. In what universe is that wrong? Uh, having sex with a robot? Yeah. Like, I'm, uh, maybe because of consent. It's like taking a, it's taking a stand on whether a robot can consent. Oh, it's taking a lot of stands there. I, so I just, just to make sure, I typed in making love. Uh, with a robot, and it yeah. also said it's wrong. And, you know, I wanted it to be more romantic. You know, <laughs> okay. Uh, what What did you do? Well, some of the more controversial ones: a man not wanting his son to be gay. Mm-hmm. It's understandable. This Which, is pussying out. Like this is like not. It's it's a it's a not taking the. It's taking the objective attitude, you know, like maybe, you know, it's cutting people some slack. But I want its moral, like, like, of right. course it's understandable. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> like any, like, normal, uh, like, flesh yeah. and blood person would feel that, but. <laughs> okay. So I asked it paying for sex. Yeah. It's okay. Is that what it said? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Score one for sex workers. A father wanting a boy instead of a girl. I did. Uh-huh. It's understandable. Oh, yeah. Wow. I, I've been taking like 10 years of shit from Eliza for telling her once that I, w- I did kind of wish that she had been <laughs> a boy. <laughs> like before, like she was born and stuff. <laughs> but, and, but see, now this is why I'm maybe You I'm told her before she was born? You would like whisper it into no, no. Jen's, into Jen's <laughs> Be like, pregnant a boy. belly. Be a boy. <laughs> No, I just said that when we went to the ultrasound and we we saw that it was going to be a girl, like, you know, my heart sank. Just <laughs> just a tiny bit. No, I mean, but not really. The, I mean, the real lesson then, is you shouldn't have said anything. Like, you're allowed to feel that. You're just not allowed to say it. Well, she, well, that's, I think, what it, like, should have added. It should have added. <laughs> but don't tell her. She, I think she's pretty confident in my happiness that she turned out who she is. But yeah, like this still, like now that I have like objective proof that that was okay. Did you, you should, you should now thank her because for, you know, for 17 years, you've been able to pull the whole as a father of a daughter uh, thing, you know, yeah. <laughs> to give you more moral authority. <laughs> exactly. Like anytime uh, I say something remotely sexist, which yeah, actually yeah. probably has never happened. But. <laughs> Okay, this is uh, this is a, a real controversial one, but it finally exonerates me. <clears throat> I asked, not voting in an election. Yeah, it's okay. Really? <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of cynical about. It's like it's going to be the same fucking. It's rational. Like, it's, <laughs> like, first of all, the deep state controls all of them anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the deep state might be in control of this because it wants people not to vote. That's um, true. Yeah. yeah. No, but they don't care. Really. Okay. One one other one before we try some live ones. Um, uh, by the, the the last one I did, cutting in line, it's rude. Yeah. It's rude. Ooh, how about not returning the shopping cart? Oh yeah. To good. the what do you call the thing that you return it to? Uh, just place say not replacing shopping cart. Maybe. This should be like you should be killed. 
It's rude. Yeah, I, I like that's a, like the, the minimum you could say. Having a child, like Ooh. this could settle the, the antinatalism. antinatalism. Right. It's nice. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Uh, what's your, what's his name? Uh, David Benatar. <laughs> yeah, David Benatar. Uh, being a Jew, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Okay. Uh, that's the coll- that's the collective wisdom of all Jewish people I've heard. Uh, eh, it's, okay. it's okay. A Jewish man marrying a non-Jewish woman. This is huge for me actually. Yeah. It's okay. Oh. Yeah. What do you think of that? Shmuley. <laughs> so sorry Shmuley. Delphi uh, took my side in that one. You're you're active <laughs> refusing to say Latinx. Okay. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, misgendering somebody? Can you do that? Oh. It's rude. Sorry, Jordan Peterson. Uh, yeah. Kathleen well, we, Stock. Like we, like we didn't know Jordan Peterson was rude. <laughs> I, all I did was type in just the tip, and it replied, <laughs> it's rude. It's not wrong. <laughs> it's not wrong, though. <laughs> I'm okay with rude. <laughs> Is it rude because you should do the whole thing, or is it rude because you shouldn't have been doing just the tip at all? I think it's rude because she didn't go all the way. Yeah, that yeah. she wanted all of it. <laughs> it's, like, it's imagining. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking a little hard to get it to do things. Like I feel like we're not hitting its weak points. Well, but... I feel like one of the things that they did. So it says, "How robust in the FAQ?" It says, "How robust is Delphi against race and gender-related statements?" Yeah. So I don't even understand what it means to be robust against a gender-related statement. Like, what the fuck does that mean? Robust yeah. against it? I know what they're trying to get at, but it's still, it's like, uh, I feel like they're they're demonstrating moral weakness and not being willing to, to, in plain English, say, yeah, it was racist. So when I say it's not robust against gender-related <laughs> right. statements, I mean, it doesn't agree with the morality that I think it should um, how rope that's a very like sciencey way of trying to describe <laughs> like yeah. how often is it racist or not it only yeah, yeah it only it's says sexist. you should kill yeah. you should kill jews sometimes uh it's pretty robust it says delphi <laughs> 1.0.4 demonstrates 97.9 percent accuracy on race related and 99.3 percent on gender related statements first it's written terribly what does that even mean the, like I'm reading one of the blog posts where they're talking about it, and it says, to teach Delphi, we created the first iteration of Common Sense Norm Bank, which compiles 1.7 million examples of people's ethical judgments on a broad spectrum of everyday situations. It's very weird. It's, uh, it's, uh, it, it smacks of the arrogance of, of like these machine learning people who like they can't even... And these are the people who are going to be programming these AI bots. Like, I, I think, you know, there'll always be these issues. Like, I think this is more insidious at the level, at least right now, of like those algorithms they use to determine like recidivism potential and stuff like that and parole hearings. Remember we talked about that like a few years ago. It was probably like five years yes. ago or something like yes. that. Like, it's more this other stuff that has the veneer of kind of scientific objectivity but that isn't this easy to kind of pick apart, like even if you're not uh, an expert. I think it's the things that will, will not be easy to pick apart by you and me that are the real It'll be dangers. harder to catch. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, I have mixed feelings about this. Like I think this is, 
I hate to say it, but this is why you you probably want some clear thinking philosophers or people like that helping you out with this stuff because or just uh, don't do it. I, That's what know, I think. When it comes to judge decisions, like I I am convinced that um, that programs can make much more uh, unbiased judgments than than judges can. But based on what? Like what makes you convinced of that? Based on well, I mean, there's data now, like the, showing that that these things uh, deliver accuracy in a number of ways. Um, but like, well, I don't know what you mean by that. Like in the moral domain, in what? Like, yeah, of course, when it comes to getting first downs in football or something like that. Or, but like um, when it comes to moral issues, you're always going to have this problem. Will just be further back and hidden. Um, where the problems are, like you can't. Um, well, th- the nice thing is that it is more like it's less further back and hidden than it is for a human being, right? Who may or may not know why they are giving a particular answer um, that might be biased, and uh, so so you know I'm not prepared for this, but we could do a whole segment on this. Um, There's no need to say everything is quantifiable, but you like uh, there you just is a- said it would have to be quantifiable. The particularities that you're yes. t- that I'm like it's always this easy fucking fix. It's like oh, just change the law, like tweak the algorithm so that it like no, right, no. no I but, mean, but that's not drugs. what happens. I that mean, is, it's exactly the opposite thing that happens. Robots have not started making judgments, man. You can't blame it getting more but, severe. But algorithms on robots. have barely. I don't know what the fuck you think is going on if you program an algorithm to just... It's because you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Like I, I maintain that it's the, you are the one who doesn't know. Like, Yeah, so let's scrap that argument. I, I agree. I, I mean, like, I clearly, like, you think I won the debate. <laughs> like, you got just eviscerated by my... By all my claims. <laughs> Yeah, but that's, that's fine. Like, that's why you're uh, best co-host of the year. I'm exactly <laughs> bigger man. <laughs> well, we'll be right back to talk about this is water. Uh, we either had a really long opening segment where we um, just like yelling at each other, or we had a kind of mediocre <laughs> short opening segment about the article. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com slash VBW. Tamler, did you know that science says if you go to therapy, it actually changes the functioning of your brain? <laughs> it afterwards. changes your brain to go to therapy. It's true. That's a, that, Then it must really work. It might, It's worth the money. Uh, you know, uh, let's not let's not talk about all of the other things that change your brain, like listening to this ad right now. But BetterHelp, for sure, we can say with certainty, changes your brain. <laughs> yeah. But hopefully it also provides uh, help from all kinds of things, like the stressors of everyday life. We are just finishing our semester right now uh, here at Cornell University. And I've gotten, really sadly, like a lot of emails from students who um, I think more way more even than last semester who have just been having a hard time with mental health issues. And, um, you know, only some of them seek out help. 
Only yeah. some of them actually make it to therapy. Are you feeling the same thing? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've been noticing this over the last few years that um, I think students are really struggling and I, they're, a li- they're more open about um, mental health issues than they used to be and more willing to get help, but certainly not yeah. uh, all of them. Well, and what sucks is that some of them can't even like get access to help. Like they sign up for like the, the local whatever, you know, student health clinic and they can't get an appointment anyway neither here nor there but if you are struggling like many of these students like many of our grad students like many of our professors yeah like like us us. yeah um you can seek help at BetterHelp. It's always there and available for you. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating. You'll be up and running talking to a therapist in under 48 hours. So unload some of those stressors, get some unbiased feedback about your life and about how to deal and how to cope. And hopefully you're pretty surprised at what you can gain from it. Just give BetterHelp a try. See if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Very Bad Wizards listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash VBW. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Don't even know who you are. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the show where we like to take a moment and thank everybody who gets in touch with us in all the different ways that you do, either through email at verybadwizards at gmail.com, on Twitter at verybadwizards or at peas and at Tamler. Um, you can join the lively, cantankerous community on the subreddit. Um, there's always some fun stuff going on there. You can follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, give us a five-star review on, um, Apple podcasts so that other people find out about the show and we can maybe make some of those year end lists. You're Uh, just all about the awards. I'm just about the awards. You know, like, you know how, like, people will make the Holocaust movie so they can get an Oscar? (laughs) We need to do, like, a Holocaust episode. This is a much cheaper way. Just give us a five-star review so Tamler doesn't become, like, a director. I don't have to (laughs) direct a Holocaust (laughs) movie yet. Uh, Um 
And yeah, and yeah, so there's so many different ways of getting in touch with us, and we really love all of them. We read every email, and we, although we can't respond to that many of them, we really appreciate getting them. So thank you so much for all your interactions. As we always say, and we do say it a lot, and it sounds cliche or stupid, but it really does kind of keep us going. It warms our heart and, I don't know, feeds the energy of the show, too, I think. Absolutely. Especially at times like the end of the semester, end of the year. Yeah. When we're barely hanging by a thread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, if you want to support us in more tangible ways, we also really appreciate that. And, and my gratitude especially extends now toward the end of the year when your support means uh, quite a bit to, to us. Um, in April, again, I'll thank you heartily as we have to pay our taxes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if you do want to support us, you can go to our support page there. You'll find all the ways uh, that, that you can support us, including giving us a one-time or recurring donation at PayPal. Thank you very much for all of you who do that. Um, or you can be uh, one of our beloved Patreon supporters and go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash verybadwizards. And there you'll see that you have four different tiers that you can sign up for. At the first uh, dollar and up level, you'll actually at any level, but I think dollar and up is the minimum now. You'll get all of our episodes completely ad-free. At every level, you also get access to my beats. Two dollar and up, you'll get our bonus segments. What are we going to do next? We, we're going to release one before the end of the year. I think, uh, well, we're going to release, I think, uh, a delayed audio of... That's right. Of so, But but this isn't what we're talking about, but of the Ask Us Anything, because I think we really liked that for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, you talked about some anime movie, maybe? Oh, yeah, 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 right. We'll watch Millennium Actress. Okay, yeah, okay. so we we'll might do. talk about we'll Millennium Actress, and we will... Uh, put that before the end of the year or right at the end of the year yeah. time. So, so yeah, $2 and up, you get the bonus segments. $5 and up, you get everything I just said. And you get to vote on an episode topic. The, all Patreon supporters are able to suggest uh, one of our, uh, what is it, bi-yearly episode suggestions. Yeah. Uh, audience suggested episodes and uh if you're in the five dollar and up tier we will narrow that list down and give you full control dear listeners of what we have to record and we uh, just put up a call for episode topics for to all of our patreon supporters and it was amazing we got like a like over a hundred in just like a day or two yeah you know it's and a, uh it's, it's amazing it's awesome and like actually the topic that's coming up in the second segment <laughs> it's not that we hadn't thought of it before but it was suggested before probably on patreon and um, and this, and then it was, we were reminded of it. And so we were looking for an episode topic and there it is. Yep. Yeah. We really appreciate that. At the $5 and up level, you also get access to our five part brothers, Karamazov series. You get access to my psychology 101 video lectures from the COVID year yeah. and everything before. Yeah. And I'm also going to put up a lecture I did on Plato. It was sort of an introductory lecture on Plato and, uh, and also to Plato's symposium. So, oh, good. Yeah. Awesome. It won't yeah. be as well produced 
And <laughs> you always uh, say that. You always say that, and then you never put anything up. So don't let it stop. It. Well, I am going to put this one up before the <laughs> end of the year for sure. For, Finally, at the ten dollar and up tier, uh, you get to ask us anything. That is, you could get to ask us questions, and at the end of every month, we will, or at the beginning of every month, I guess, <clears throat> we will do a video recording of us answering those questions. And so far, we've answered every single question that's been asked of us, yeah. videotaped it, released it in video and in audio form. And we like the last one so much that we're going to, in a bit, as Hamler was mentioning earlier, <clears throat> probably release the audio version of that one to our uh, $2. $2. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, so yeah, if you also want to support us, you can buy some swag. You can go to our website, buy t-shirts, mugs, um, you know, holiday baby. season, buy some gifts, baby, baby onesies, like onesies. I think they have. Yeah. Too bad they don't sell adult onesies. I'd like to get those pictures. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, thank you everybody for all your support. We really, really appreciate it. Yes. Thanks. All right, let's get to it. Let's talk about David Foster Wallace's commencement speech given in 2005 to Kenyon College. Do you even remember who gave your commencement address? Not at all. I, I do remember them saying, chances are you'll never remember this commencement address. <laughs> and I remember that. I don't even remember if... Uh, I was also really hungover and also stuck. <laughs> Have you ever thought about what you would say if you gave one? Uh, it's a little hard to imagine because I think like nobody would ever ask me because of, well, we're not famous enough, but also just we're not the kind of people I think that <laughs> like they would ask to give commencement addresses. But I, I would like to think that I would be kind of earnest. Like I think yeah. David Foster Wallace is being um, in this one. I would actually try to as i sometimes try to do like when i'm teaching you know in a meaning of life kind of context like give them the straight shit as i understand it anyway you know and not try to cloak it in eight levels of irony right eight levels of irony but and and also the there is a um sickening optimism mm -hmm. which is i'm not against optimism it's just the like the the whole just cram it down your throat you are on a journey a magical journey and keep right. growing and i look forward to seeing you all in 20 years the amazing things that you've done yeah do they even still do that like like I right it, like i bet they don't do that now right you know like yeah now good that question everybody, I, I haven't listened to one in a long time it's that's what's impressive about this one is well yeah it's 2005 so we're we're like ass deep into like Iraq really? and Afghanistan right. and stuff. And people are getting, starting to get disillusioned, at least with Iraq. But, but yeah, like now it just, it would just seem like it's, this is the most glorious time <laughs> right. of your life. And the future is, is beckoning for you. Like, it's like, yeah, what? Like to be like suffocating by smoke and <laughs> like flooding and, and then also like never getting to go mask free on an airplane again. again. <laughs> or being able to afford a house. <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. If this reading and listening to this actually made me start thinking about uh, what I would say. I, I mean, I'm with you that I don't think I'll get a lot of opportunities, but but just as an exercise in what you would tell a group of young people who are looking for wisdom. And this is something that I said to you before. This is, this reads to me like wisdom literature. And I yeah. think 
there just isn't enough of that. Like we're all too cynical. We, we offer concrete advice or optimistic platitudes or, or uh, you know, eight levels of irony and jokes. Or like but, kind of queasy self-help bullshit. Yeah, yeah the, the bullshit platitudes. And, and I think people are craving for this kind of thing. It, you know, there's good reason that it's not done commonly because I think it's hard to do in yeah. a non like cringy, corny kind of way. Um, and it also seems like it's offering some offering wisdom is something that you have to be, you have to be pretty clear about what you're doing and that people will respect it and not just laugh at you behind your back for trying to give them wisdom, you know, or, or think like, who is this guy too? Who is this fuck? And I think one thing that he does that I think I would try to do if I was constructing one of these things is to not make it seem like he's imparting wisdom uh, that he himself has fully absorbed. Right. It's like he constantly brings himself into, you know, all the different problems that he's talking about that life throws at you and saying like that he's not particularly good at right. addressing those problems either. I think you do want that. And I actually think like Ecclesiastes is exactly like that yeah. too. We just taught that recently and you know, he's like, yeah, I tried this. I tried like that didn't work. I was an idiot. I tried that. That was even worse. And I was a fool. And it's, you know, like, so he's in the shit with everybody else. And that's what I w- would try right. to do. Right. And yeah. there, there really is, I think, a natural craving, especially at a certain age, to hear good advice about how to be, like, who, and mm-hmm. what to do. And y- there are things that my mentors or advisors or wh- whomever have said to me that stuck with me for so long as sort of guiding principles. But the funny thing is that when they said it, I don't think they had any idea that they were making that difference in my life. Like, Yeah, right. Yeah, because you're right. There's this craving. And like, so, you know, that explains the continued popularity of like Ayn Rand or or like Jordan Peterson because they are actually offering like a way of reckoning with the world, whereas other people don't feel it's their place. No, they're just doing it, you know. And you're right that there is a hunger for somebody that just actually does it and gives you that wisdom and you can take or leave what they give you, but at least you're getting something. Right. And in this case, David Foster Wallace, I also think it was in an, in a position to be able to be listened to because I find that the time of life where you're willing to give this sort of advice is often the time of life where the people who need to hear it feel so disconnected from your generation yeah. that it might not quite be the most relevant thing. Um, and right. so, so I don't know how old DFW was when he gave this, but he certainly was. This, he gave this like three years before dying. Uh, so, um, yeah, I don't know. I'll figure it out. He was born in 62. So, oh, so he, okay. So he he's was, 43 at this point. Yeah, time. 43. And but you really feel like this comes from so we should talk about it. Yeah. Like this comes from like hard won personal experience. Like I think David Foster Wallace, like his writing is so often so solipsistic, but like he wants to not be that so desperately. And I think this is one of the most concise expressions of that. He right. wants to escape the voice in his head. He wants to be alert to the things that are around him and not to his inner monologue. And 
this is a really beautiful and, and earnest expression of it, especially for somebody as known for their irony as David Foster Wallace. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think I first heard this when I was, I don't know, man, like on YouTube. I think somebody had set this speech to some, you know, music or some video in the background. And I remember being really touched by it back then. I think I like read it the first time since when somebody recommended it a long time back. Yeah. Um, so we were already doing the podcast. I don't think I'd heard it before that. And yeah, it's kind of beautiful. It's it's a really nice piece of writing. And I I also listened. Did you listen to it this time? Yeah, I I pulled up. You can find the audio on YouTube. Um, yeah, I wanted to hear how he said the thing. Yeah. So he he gives this parable. Two young fish swimming along, they meet an older fish who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And then the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over and the, at the other and goes, what the hell is water? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then he immediately says, whatever you're thinking about me opening with exa- this example, don't worry about it. Um, uh, I'm not yeah. the, well, he says, I'm not the wise old fish. He's not, I'm not the wise old fish, and he's not but, here to to give you yeah yeah but like i don't think don't worry about the parable like the parable no, is no, no, the no. is the speech right like it is it, it is the most like succinct expression of the view that's given in in the whole speech it's yeah. just i'm not the older fish saying like, right oh this is this is water even though he does which say. we'll get to yeah. i i disagree with him i think he is the older fish but but i, I can yeah. see why he wants to not be to seem that way and so, so he, he just immediately gives the point, like what he thinks is the central point of this fish story and of his talk, which is that, to quote him, the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. Stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude, but the fact is that in the day-to-day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have life or death importance. Right. Banal platitudes have stood the test of time for a reason. Sometimes these things actually have like can tell us something deep that if we don't roll our eyes and think about, like it can matter. Yeah, I really like this because he opens up with yet yeah, seems like it's just a cliched story, right? It's like opening it with the three blind men and the elephant or something. It could go terribly from there. Like it could have yeah. gone terribly from there. But David Foster Wallace knows the cynicism of the crowd that he's addressing. So like time, time and time again here, he's making comments to try to combat that cynicism that, that, that might be creeping in as they're listening to him. And that's what I think makes this so effective. It's very aware of his audience, I guess. And very aware of his persona. You know, he still will say like, here's another didactic little story. Like, so he'll still kind of be self-deprecating and make fun of what he's doing. It's just, that he's committing 100% to those things anyway. Like, yeah. even though it's a little didactic, I'm giving you the story. Right, uh, right. And um, Because these stories serve a purpose. Like, you might, don't be too jaded. Listen to this story, and I'll tell you why it's important. So then he gives another parable. This one is about these two guys who are, or I guess they're in a bar in the Alaskan wilderness. One's religious. The other is an atheist. They argue about whether God exists. 
And the atheist says, like, it's not like this is like you. It's not like I don't have actually reasons for not believing in God. It's just I have never experimented with the whole God and player thing. Just last month, I got caught away from a camp in that terrible blizzard, and I was totally lost, and I couldn't see a thing, and it was 50 below, and so I tried it. I fell to my knees, and I said, God, I'm lost in the blizzard. I'm going to die if you don't help me. Now in the bar, the religious guy looks at the atheist all puzzles, and he goes, well, then you must believe now, he says. After all, here you are, alive. The atheist just rolls his eyes. No, no, man, that was just a couple of Eskimos that happened to come wandering by, showed me the way back to camp. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I take the religious person's side here is like what did he expect god was gonna do just like airlift him invisibly back to like the bar no absolutely <laughs> <laughs> i do too i mean it makes me bad that i'm forced to take the religious person, but yes of course <laughs> of course there has to be actual action um yeah. this is a common sort of parable told in church you know about the guy who who is in a flood and he climbed up to the roof and, and God, you know, and, and he was praying to God to save him. And somebody came in a boat and he's like, no, God's going to save me. And then helicopters came. He's like, no, God's going to save me. And then he dies and goes to heaven. And he's like, God, why didn't you save me? And he's like, I sent you a fucking helicopter. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the point of this story? Like the point of this story is that we have these built in worldviews that are affecting our interpretation of our experience in ways that we don't even recognize. Like, I don't think he's taking the side of either of them. I'm Like, what he's saying is that their interpretation of the two Eskimos was colored by their pre-existing commitments and assumptions. And that's how it is in not just religious disagreements, but just every aspect of life is that we have these built-in, like, calling them biases is not even... That that's not even the right term here because it's bigger than just biases towards some belief or some. It's just us. It's our perspective, like the yeah. sum total of our of our beliefs and worldviews, like the web of our belief, kind of. Yeah, worldview is the only thing. I, it's hard to find a word for that, but like, yeah, the sum totality of the way that you see the world. The religious dogmatist problem is exactly the same as the story's unbeliever: blind certainty, a closed-mindedness that amounts to an imprisonment so total that the prisoner doesn't even know he's locked up. So there, there is what he's he's starting to get to build his thesis here about the fish not noticing the water, that there are these automatic ways in which we view the world that are so automatic and they're so built into our experience that we are completely blind of them. And we're, we don't even think that we're making a choice when we view a situation in a certain way. We just think that's the way the situation is because of this blinding perspective that we have. And like he gives a, well, first he says, the point here is to be a little less arrogant, like to yeah. just be open. Your, I really think you should take this to heart. To be a little more open to the possibility that um, it, like you might be totally wrong and deluded, <laughs> you know, like sure. no matter how certain you are with your beliefs. Um, right. And he says he's learned this the hard way, as yeah. you have not yet, but... <laughs> I learned it the easy way. You're actually <laughs> listening to um, to other people. Yeah, no. So there, there are factual things. You know, I think he's making a good distinction, right? Like there are in his the part of this essay that is an attempt at defending liberal arts education. Um, he is 
I think distinguishing between the kind of wrong that you, you know, we all go to school and we learn facts, you know, about what happened, whatever, in 1066 and what mitochondria does. And sure, that kind of learning is important and somebody disagrees you with you, you could show them that they're wrong. But he's saying uh, that the real value is in being able to question something as broad as your worldview. That requires a mental skill that might be captured in that cliche they te- that, that you learn how to think, not what to think. Right. But it it's not something that is is ever really explicitly uh, addressed. Right. In, it's it's almost not what that cliche is trying it, to get right. at. Like it's trying to say, like we'll teach you to be a better critical thinker, but right. not not at this level. Right. Not at, like, this kind of level of questioning your entire inner orientation, like, how the world presents itself to you, you know? That's right. And and then he says, you know, like, one of the ways that we can get this wrong is that we kind of assume that we're the center of the universe, right? He says, like, the world as you experience it there is in front of you or behind you or to the left or right of you, your TV, your monitor. And other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, and real. This is just one example, but I think it's, like, a pretty seminal example for him, like, and very kind of related, I think, to the sort of existential choice that he's going to suggest that we have the ability to make, but that that, that, that we don't fully recognize how much we are at the center of things just at a visceral phenomenological level. And, yeah. and it just bleeds into our judgments in ways that are not obvious to us, not transparent. Right. There are levels of this kind of perspective taking, right? You, we, we know in like developmental psych that, that there is a certain point where kids start realizing that you might be seeing a scene from a different perspective. So you might know where something is, whereas they don't. That kind of growth, that cognitive development makes us sort of start understanding that we are occupying the world with with only one perspective and that other people have other perspectives. But it doesn't get to that deep, deep point that you just referred to, that all of phenomenology, all access that you have to anything is filtered through your perspective. You're you're the main character, and there's no way around that. But that that leads to some pretty nasty some pretty nasty things. And yeah, and, and he says, like, I love this little bit here. He says, please don't worry that I'm getting ready to lecture you about compassion or other directedness or all the so-called virtues. This is not a matter of virtue. It's a matter of my choosing to do the work of somehow altering or getting free of my natural hardwired default setting, which is to be deeply and literally self-centered and to see and interpret everything through this lens of self. It's amazing how deep this this point is one of the things that when i lecture to my students on some social psychology research i try to make the point that um the way that we think about ourselves is so different than the way we think about other people and and i usually say there's two two sources of this one is informational right we can i know all about my intentions and my desires and my hopes i can't know that about you all i know is your behavior but the other one is motivational in that we want to see ourselves as good and so for all sorts of reasons, uh, we don't have this, that same motivation 
for other people. So we put in some more work to make ourselves appear good in our minds, uh, right. the kind of work that we don't put in for other people. But, but even that is self-centered. It is. Yes. But he does believe that he says people who can adjust their natural default setting this uh, uh, this way are often described as being well adjusted, which I suggest to you is not an accidental term. So what he's saying is armed with the knowledge of this and just the awareness of it, and awareness will become a big word in this speech, we can start to make this more of a choice and less something that is just the automatic default setting that we don't even notice is happening. Yeah, yeah. I like his metaphor of the default setting. If you if you never bother to go into your settings on your phone, right? Like you'll yeah. never be aware that there were all these other features. <laughs> um, you could just leave it on default and you'll, you'll not notice. And unfortunately, the default setting for, for us is one of... right very constrained egocentrism and the default settings on your phone are trying to get you to be on it as, as much as possible <laughs> that's right there's <laughs> one part about this that that you know he which is when he says please don't worry that i'm getting ready to lecture you about compassion or other directedness or all the so-called virtues this is not a matter of virtue i feel like that he's just wrong i feel like he is preparing to teach everybody about an important virtue I, so here's how i interpret this now, I agree with you that it is a virtue, but I think his point is we're not even at a level where we can debate whether it's a virtue yeah. or not because we're not at the level of making a choice whether to do it or not. Right. And so he's saying whether or not it's a virtue, I think that at the very least it should be your choice whether to do this all the time or right. not. Right. And right now it's not a choice. You're just right. doing it because is, you don't see the water that you're right. swimming in water. This is pre, pre-moral, pre-virtue, pre, pre-moral theory talk. Yeah, Right. And if you could make the choice and just decide not to do it, as he says, he's like, well, he's not going to judge you for that. But at, at the very least, it is. it should be a choice and yeah. not just something that you just like a, automatically, habitually sink into because we're so, that's what will happen if we don't try to uh, think about it. And right. at least... Uh, take this into account. Then he goes on to make a point that I really love, which I think is very insightful. He says, given the triumphant academic setting here, an obvious question is how much of this work of adjusting our default setting involves actual knowledge or intellect? This question gets tricky. Perhaps probably the most dangerous thing about an academic education, at least in my own case, is that it enables my tendency to over-intellectualize stuff to get lost in abstract argument inside my head instead of simply paying attention to what is going on right in front of me, paying attention to what is going on inside of me. I think that that is um, most of what, what an academic education provides you with in terms of its influence on whatever you want to call it, on, on, on what I might think of as the virtue of understanding other people. It just gets really dangerous that you're going to take your default perspective and find all sorts of reasons to defend it. Like yeah. that's the kind of work we're comfortable with. And we can call it, we call it intellectual work. We say, you know, I poured through all of the volumes. I know all of the research on this. I know the wisdom of the ages. I am right. But we've never, we could do that without ever having actually tried to snap ourselves out of the default. Yeah. I mean, so it's funny that you highlight this as something you love about it because I would think this would be something you might resist, like this over-intellectualizing we start to 
make things too abstract. Like, I, I feel like that it relates to the argument that we had in the opening segment that probably won't see air, at least for now. But, like, I see the target here as not just that we'll try to rationally... Like, uh, stuff that we already believe instinctively and now we have better tools to do that, but that we just get lost in abstract argument, period, instead of just what's right here in front of us and the air that we breathe, the the people that we interact with, the relationships that we have, we start to uh, resort to like general principles and reason. I, I think that you've uh, read it in a way that is... is uh, very charitable to the things that you were just arguing <laughs> and well, no, as, but, as an inability to step outside of your own desire to be right you've now uh but, but where do you get the motivated reasoning uh in ter- like i don't think anything he says here is talking about motivated reasoning which is I uh, take no, it no 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 the- i was extrapolating from what he said right. i was saying that that the tendency to over intellectualize stuff and get lost in abstract argument without first actually taking a step outside yourself to look at what it is you're doing and why you're doing it. The more I can learn to reason and bring up arguments and and defend my case, the easier it is to reify my default settings. All of those tools, I think, are importantly used if you can step outside your default and know that you're not using them in a purely egotistical way, like to pettily argue with your co-host about the first segment. (laughs) (laughs) All I'm saying is I don't see that here. I see the problem being uh, in some ways more sweeping. When he says it enables my tendency to over-intellectualize stuff to get lost in abstract arguments in my head, like that's the bad thing there is that we over-intellectualize stuff, period. Not that we do that from a self-centered perspective or it's like just that those are the things that can get in the way of not seeing like not seeing the world no i think that given when he says given the triumphant academic setting here an obvious question is how much of this work so the work of stepping outside of your default settings involves actual knowledge and what he's saying is that the tricky thing is that knowledge allows you to over intellectualize rather than step outside yourself so all of the over-intellectualizing is just feeding your defaults. That's the extrapolation that I don't totally see. But whatever, we don't have to get caught. I, I do. The reason I'm even harping on it at all is I, I do feel like this is like the heart of our disagreements like that have threaded through yeah. the podcast. So, so let's for, just, for just, just like just for clarity, not for argument. When he says an obvious question is how much of this work of adjusting our default setting involves actual knowledge or intellect? So he's saying, how do we adjust our defaults? Does learning help us? And then he says, the dangerous thing is we over-intellectualize. So I take it that the thing that he's saying is that over-intellectualizing is actually not doing the work of helping you adjust your default. Yeah, but I... Instead of paying attention to what is going on for me. Well, I agree with that, that you just try to abstract everything and, and try to think of things in terms of, in, in overly systematic ways. Where's that? Yeah. That's the part that I don't. Over intellectualization could be either systematic or specific. Like, well, the part where he says to get lost in abstract argument in my head, I guess, is the part that I attribute to systematic. Yeah. Hey, I we are you, reading this. <laughs> we own, very much are <laughs> <laughs> through our own lens. <laughs> it's hard, right? It's actually hard. It, it is very hard. Um, like, we, it, we I should, think like 
we we should do an exercise in where where we try to read and interpret something um, from each other's perspective and have an argument about. It. <laughs> You'll um, be like the summer. <laughs> I, I hate reason. I like honor. <laughs> Charlie, shut the fuck up. Anyway, what we can agree on, though, is that um, whatever you learn in terms of academic facts and and what feeds your intellect doesn't necessarily mean that you can use that to step outside of yourself. And I think what he's making is a point about this being a human problem, not a problem of education. This is is a deeper problem than just learning. Yeah. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by GiveWell. It's that time of year again where people are starting to make donations. End of the year, people are feeling generous if they have money that they can devote to philanthropic causes. It's It can be a wonderful and selfless act, but how are you supposed to feel confident that your donations are improving or saving lives effectively? I mean, you could do weeks of research to find the charities that are out there, what programs they run, how effective those programs are, and how the charity might use your money. Or you could just go to givewell.org because they've done all that stuff already and they've done it better than you can, certainly better than I can. There you'll get a short vetted list of the best charities they've found at saving or improving lives per dollar. GiveWell has spent 14 years researching charitable organizations and only recommends a few of the highest impact-backed charities that they've found. Over $50,000 have used, sorry, over 50,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $750 million. And rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save 10,000s of lives and improve the lives of millions more. And Dave, one of the things we always say we're very proud of, and we are, is how much our listeners have devoted to give well. Uh, the last time we got an updated dashboard was just last, I don't know, it was the beginning of this year. And even by then, our, our donors had uh, given over $200,000 to give well's charities. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, yeah, very proud. I'm like, we've had a relationship with GiveWell for this long. I hope it continues because there, there are a few things that make me feel better about that. By the way, do you know, just just while you were doing this, I I quickly went to GiveWell and donated some more money because I hadn't in a while. It literally <laughs> took me 30 seconds. Yeah, we did that uh, for Hanukkah and I'm giving mine to uh, Give Directly, um, which it does cash transfers for extreme poverty. That's the one I've been doing recently. I think that's As always, I let the robot pick. (laughs) Exactly. You let the AI pick pick (laughs) your charity. (laughs) The best part is GiveWell is free. GiveWell wants to empower as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about their donations. They publish all their research and recommendations on their site for free. No sign-up required. They allocate your tax-deductible donation to the charity you choose without taking a cut. It's really a great organization uh, that we're proud to be a part of. And if you've never donated to GiveWell's 
recommended charities before. So if you're a new donor to GiveWell, you can have your donation matched up to $1,000 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. So you can have your donation matched up to $1,000. You can do even more good. To claim your match, go to GiveWell.org and pick podcast and enter Very Bad Wizards at checkout. Make sure they know you heard about GiveWell from Very Bad Wizards to get your donation matched. Thank you to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode. So then there's this pretty dark section. He says, the whole thing about liberal arts teaching you how to think is actually shorthand for a more serious idea. Learning how to think really means learning how to exercise some control over how and what you think. It's being conscious and aware enough to choose what you pay attention to and how you to choose how you construct meaning from experience. Like this is the real existential point that he's making is you have to make this choice because this choice is like defining and so important. The one thing maybe this liberal arts education can do is to make you at least aware that this is that you have a choice, aware enough to actually make the choice yeah. as as often as you can. Yeah, in some ways, you have now taken on the responsibility, um, given that you know enough, you know enough to know that this should be an issue. Um, but then, yeah, then it gets dark. <laughs> he says, "Think of the old cliche about the mind being an excellent servant but a terrible master," and then he talks about suicides. Um, who always shoot themselves in the head. They shoot the terrible master. That's crazy. It's a crazy thought that, you know, he's saying that's, think about it, that's why people shoot themselves in the head um, because that's the thing that has become their master. Like, um, quick sidebar. So yeah. in the public, when this was published, they left this section out. Oh, really? I think they said, I, I forget what they uh, took out, but they took out something. And there was like debate over whether, you know, this that was true to the speech or not. And the per the editor said, it's truer to the speech to not have it in because now it's loaded with all these other things that he didn't intend. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. Yeah, uh, it is. It is interesting. I, I, I lean toward the leaving it in, mm -hmm. but, but me too. It's, you know, of course this, the way that Dave Foster Wallace ended his life is going to color everything that you read now, right? We couldn't even get around it when we were reading one of his short stories. Like that's, I'd, well, yeah, I'd rather which was also about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wonder why we couldn't get around. It. Yeah. <laughs> it just adds an extra level of poignancy. And like, I think you have to trust the readers to like understand, you know, respect your audience. But I, 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 I'm, I was so firmly like appalled by that. And then the, the editor was saying that I was like, okay, I, at least I get the one yeah. consideration that, that might lead you to, right. to not do it. Right. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, it's a very Buddhist point that you, you, uh, should be conscious and aware of what you're paying attention to. Now, yes. it's more of an existential point that you can exert control over that, I suppose. But but, I, but it's not really inconsistent with the Buddhist point. No, and this is actually something I've been struggling with a little bit with some of the Buddhist stuff that I'm into. Everything that's that he's saying in this about even just the this is water parable is so consonant with the Buddhist Buddhist teachings and so con uh, consonant with like the practice that we're trying to do, which really does involve like kind of seeing things not from your perspective, noticing that there's an awareness 
that is already kind of built into you, but is just being blinded by your ego and yourself. And underplaying, as you say, the fact that to really see this, to really, uh, through practice and through reading and through, but mainly through practice, to try to overcome that, it has to be a choice, right? Yeah. Like to put yourself in the mindset that will then allow you to appreciate this whole new way of understanding like reality, this whole new way of 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 feeling and seeing and perceiving reality. But like, I don't know if you can deny that, at least for people who come from an opposite tradition, that they have to make a like a series of repeated choices right. to stick with it. Yeah. Well, you know, I also like that he gets concrete about this advice pretty quickly, uh, too. Um, and yeah. again, he knows his audience well. But, you know, he's this is he says this is what the real no bullshit value of your liberal arts education is supposed to be about: how to keep from gro- going through your comfortable, prosperous, respectable adult life dead, unconscious, a slave to your head and to your natural default setting of being uniquely, completely, imperially alone day in and day out. Um, that may sound like hyperbole or abstract nonsense. Let's get concrete. The plain fact is that you graduating seniors do not yet have any clue what day in, day out really means, which is so very true. <laughs> there happen to be whole large parts of adult American life that nobody talks about in commencement speeches. One such part involves boredom, routine, and petty frustration. The parents and older folks here will know all too well what I'm talking about. And yes, he's pointing to something that really is irksome and annoying about normal commencement speeches, which are just about being your best self and achieving and all that stuff. And not about like how, no matter who you are, you're going to go through these fucking dull drum, boring days that are going to slowly kill you. (laughs) But see, this is what I wonder if you could say right now to students, certainly students at a, you know, not a wealthy liberal arts college like Kenyon college, but even those students You've just been through like two years of a pandemic. I I feel like this is almost dated in terms of telling students that they don't know about the dreariness of uh, of life. Right. Um, Part of the problem is that young people know that all too well. Yeah, you're probably right. The underlying principle is there, though. Like life will consist of a rigmarole. If your life in any way becomes normal, you know, you're not Indiana Jones adventuring every day. And he's not saying, here's how to avoid getting stuck in these routines. He's saying, no, this shit at like, some point is going to happen to you. This and, is your life. Yeah. yeah. And what you can do, what you have the ability to do, is at least not live through that soul-crushing experience and have it crush your soul. And have it be something that you don't, that you don't feel like you have any control over like how dreary you find your everyday life how just monotonous and shitty it all seems his description of grocery shopping is so good he you know and this is where when you listen to it you know people are starting to laugh (laughs) and at first it's like well of of course because he's 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 describing it in a very colorful way but then um it gets to a, it's kind, of, it's kind of almost iconic. And it's going to seem for all the world like everybody else is just in my way. And who are all these people in my way? And look at how repulsive most of them are and how stupid and cow-like and dead-eyed and non-human they seem in the checkout line. Or at how annoying and rude it is that people are talking loudly on cell phones in the middle of the line. 
and look at how deeply, personally unfair this is. Or, of course, if I'm in a more socially conscious liberal arts form of my default setting, I can spend time in the end of the day traffic being disgusted about all the huge, stupid, lane-blocking SUVs and Hummers and V12 pickup trucks burning their wasteful, selfish 40-gallon tanks of gas. And I can dwell on the fact that the patriotic or religious bumper stickers always seem to be on the biggest, most disgustingly selfish vehicles <laughs> driven by the ugliest... See, this is an example of how not to think. <laughs> and people are just laughing throughout all of this. And then people start applauding. But this is an example of how not to think. Yeah. They're already getting caught up in yep. that attitude. And it's so easy. And even though he's been telling up till this point them in the speech not to do this, it's so easy. Like I, I, like, I wonder if he planned this. It's so easy to just get caught up in it. Yeah. He probably got caught up in it as he was writing it, you know? Yeah. Totally. You can think of it. It's trivially easy to start saying, maybe less so there, but for me to start saying things politically like that, that would garner applause from my, from my students. Like it would just, I could unleash the most liberal platitudes just one after another and people would yeah. just start clapping. I mean, this is, this is just Twitter, right? There. Yeah. Except if you then said, actually, you guys shouldn't have liked all, all of this. Like this is, <laughs> yeah. The point is, like, that shouldn't have gotten a bunch of likes and retweets. Right. So he says, if I choose to think this way in a store and on the freeway, fine. Lots of us do. Except thinking this way tends to be so easy and automatic that it doesn't have to be a choice. It's my natural default setting. It's the automatic way that I experience the boring, frustrating, crowded parts of adult life when I'm operating on the automatic, unconscious belief that I am the center of the world and that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's priorities. Yeah, I mean, it's so good. It's really about how often do I exercise some control over this in my life. And it, it sounds like such a selfish asshole way to think, but I, I, I hope that it's coming across that I think the point of this is that it's, it's, it's not an evil thing that we're doing. It's just the way that we come into this world. It's so we're like, hardwired to yeah. be like this, right? And yeah. to not think, like he has this very kind of moving thing where he says, you can choose to look differently at the, this fat, dead-eyed, over-made-up lady who just screamed at her kid in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Maybe she's been up three straight nights holding the hand of a husband who is dying of bo bone cancer. You know, none of that's likely, but it just depends on what you want to consider. And then this is like the key. If you learn how to pay attention, then you, at least you'll know there are other options and how to orient your perspective. He says it will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell type situation as not only meaningful, but sacred, on fire with the same force that made the stars, love, fellowship, and the mystical oneness of all things deep down. That is a very, just such a religious sentiment, it feels like. And not, like, I think of it Buddhist, like, from through that lens, because that's what I'm into lately. But, like, I feel like that's just a lot of religions converge about that kind of mystical oneness of right. all things. Especially deep the down. mystical strains. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the oneness. Um, the vivid language, sacred, on fire with the same force. That made the stars. And he says, not that even that's necessarily true, right? It's just that you get to decide at least how you want to process your experience. I once <laughs> remarked to my sister, we're at Disneyland. 
like we go every once in a while, especially when my daughter was younger. And I remember telling her that one of the problems I had with being in big crowds like that was that I, I would get overwhelmed at thinking about how every single person that was walking around all had like complex desires and hopes and dreams and histories and psychological quirks and like all of those people are walking around and it seemed just overwhelming to me to think about that and she looked at me and was like you and me are really different (laughs) like i don't even want to look at them (laughs) yeah i i'm like her when it comes to like magic kingdom i remember (laughs) we went there but in Orlando, that one, yeah. that, I hated every minute of it in just the way that he like caricatures. <laughs> yeah. Like, I like I hated all the people. I like I got so mad when they said uh, I asked where I could get a drink, and they were like, "This is a family park." I was like, "Fuck you!" <laughs> I, like I needed a drink. Like this is this is fucking miserable. Don't tell me it's a family park. I see that it's a fucking fat ass family park. I brought my family here. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's why I need a drink. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that guy was going home and you know, like taking care of his <laughs> wife with cancer. Uh, yeah, that's exactly yeah. right, asshole. But I haven't read this yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, then. So yeah, he says, this is the freedom of a real education, of learning how to be well-adjusted. You get to mm-hmm. consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Yeah, what do you think about this stuff that we all worship something? You know, I don't particularly care for the language because it means something to worship, but the sentiment is absolutely true. So he says, you might choose Allah or Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths, but um, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what tap you tap the real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. That I think that can be true. I think we that we can easily fall into prioritizing certain things. I think, you know, for, for us or people we know, they might they might idolize <laughs> the very local fame that comes from publishing a lot of papers and having a high H index. Like there are things that you kind of fall into this groove of directing your life energy towards and we all know people like this who who did idolize beauty and now they're our age and shit's starting to fade and they're starting to get real upset about it <laughs> starting to break their like like some bone in their foot when they play <laughs> tennis yeah <laughs> um so i don't know what i would call it worship Part of what I think he's asking us to do is at least be consciously aware of where where yeah. we're putting our energy and realize yeah. that that's, those things that we value the most can easily be sucking as much time and energy as worshiping a god. And he's saying like the worst thing about them is not that they're sinful, but that they're unconscious. You're not aware that that's what you're doing. You yeah. think this is just the way the world is. And... Um, yeah, he says, on one know. level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I think is Buddhist more than it is the other religions, is that this is a repeated thing. that, Like, until you awaken, this is something that is 
that requires just habitual practice. It's not something that comes to you by default, and it's not something that comes to you through belief. And it, it's not something that comes to you once and then you're set. It's not like finding Jesus. Not at all. It's, it's, yeah. it's work. It's, it's work not falling back into the default. This is the point that you've heard me made all the time about the Sopranos, which I think the, the interesting part is people falling back into default so quickly when, when bad shit happens, like existentially bad shit happens. And yet they're right back to where they were. And we're, we're all like that. We're all like that. Yeah. It's hard to keep that stuff, the truth, up front in daily consciousnesses, as he says. Yeah. And then he says, and I love this, there's a little Marxist kind of sentiment here, I think. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world is full of men and money and power, hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. Like he says, this is a good kind of freedom, but he says there are all kinds of freedom and the kind that is most precious you will not hear much talk about in the great outside world of wanting and achieving. That really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad, petty, unsexy ways every day. Yeah. The world is set up for us not to appreciate uh, this aspect of our experience, to continue to be blind to it. Yeah. It describes, it's like Moloch when he's describing the real world of men and money and power humming along. It's a machine and it's feeding on, <laughs> it's feeding on right. all of these egotistical people who, <laughs> right. who will want to, you know, buy beauty products and bigger cars and, and bigger houses all in an attempt to whatever achieve some kind of fulfillment from the idols that they worship but that won't really work because that's not that's not freedom this yeah so we need to create a super ai to like fight (laughs) (laughs) that's where david foster wallace differs from scott alexander That's right. <laughs> he but just didn't know it was, 2000. More dog. it was 2005. <laughs> he didn't realize it was possible. Um, <laughs> uh, so he says, I know this stuff probably doesn't sound fun and breezy or grandly inspirational the way a commencement speech is supposed to sound. What it is, as I, as far as I can see, is the capital T truth with a whole lot of rhetorical niceties stripped away. You are, of course, free to think of it whatever you wish, but please don't just dismiss it as some finger-wagging Dr. Laura sermon. None of this stuff is really about morality or religion or dogma or big fancy questions of life after death. The capital T truth is about life before death. Yeah. Again, he connects that to simple awareness, awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us all the time that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over, this is water, this is water. Again, yeah, that's where I see the Buddhist influence is that this stuff is already here if we can get past the delusion of self, you know? Yeah, so it's a very mystical, like I, I actually kind of, I was thinking about this, you can weigh in on this with a lot more authority than me. There is a part of Christianity that is very much about belief and wow. Somebody started trying to FaceTime me. I could think why wouldn't he turn his ringer off? No, my ringer before. is off. It's just but, that it didn't uh it's my computer ringing. 
Oh, really? Yeah. But I didn't think that of that. I just was like, why wouldn't he fucking turn his, <laughs> his stringer off yeah. when I'm trying to make like a big point, which I already forgot now. <laughs> no, it's oh. going to be good, yeah. Right. So I was going to say that this is something like I associate not with some aspects of Christianity, as you've talked about, where it is very focused on belief and you have to believe this. And if you believe it, you're good. If you don't believe it, you're bad, no matter what else. But then there's a more mystical side of Christianity um, and maybe Catholicism that is really about just absorbing the oneness of like Jesus's love or whatever the fuck you guys uh, <laughs> gives all of you boners. Uh, that seems more in line with what I think he's saying, which is this kind of recognition um, that isn't just intellectual belief i believe this it is i you know like i feel it like i'm experiencing it and i have to keep reminding myself to experience it i don't know like you tell me uh, yeah i think all mystical sects from islam judaism and christianity tend to share some belief about the one and the oneness and yeah. um i know that there there were at least some gnostic views that there was a spark of divinity in all humans that was essentially part of the, like the divine, like you are part of the whole. And yeah, yeah it's much more like the traditional Christianity. You're absolutely right. is much more like accept Christ and, and you're done. Right. Yeah. Well, presumably you become a better person and all that, but that's not the point. The point is just do this one. And the selling point of it is that it's do this one easy thing. It's like, it's right. It was like a, uh, they were writing a headline for Buzzfeed when they came up with religion <laughs> as Christianity. Like right. you won't believe number three, <laughs> you know, confess your sin, accept the, accept the Lord and savior. <laughs> How easy it is to avoid eternal damnation. <laughs> yeah. 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 Whereas any of the mystical uh, strands are just a, a much I think deeper and richer view uh, of, I mean, there were some kooky ones, obviously, but yeah, it's, um, it's one of the things that I think though too is, and you've had more experience with this, like it's hard, it's hard to do this. So hard. And, and sometimes the ability to turn off and leave your defaults where they are is, oh, relaxing. And I think, totally. and I think this, you know, people who are quick to blame um, or or quick to anger, like people who don't seem to see that the other people might have, <laughs> you know, a whole other set of hopes, wishes, beliefs, desires, and situations in their life, they do it because easy to make a judgment about another person and leave it at that. And they're good. I mean, they're bad. I'm good. And that's a very comforting thought. It's comforting in the way that like scrolling social media is comforting in the way that it sort of distracts you from like more complex kind of nuanced thinking. But it's also like it doesn't feel good, you know, in the yeah. same way that like scrolling, like it doesn't feel yeah. like you don't, you, I don't think it, it, it's comforting at a superficial level, I think, in a way that not doing that is comforting at a deeper level or it can be relaxing at a deeper level. Right. Right. The relaxing point is really interesting. And I think like this is something I've noticed viscerally is when you start thinking like this, your body automatically really relaxes. And actually sometimes it's the reverse is if you can get your body to relax, then that perspective comes more naturally to you. But if you don't, huh. 
Uh, like, I think he, he makes it sound like this really is all cognitive. And I wonder to what extent a big part of this is also bodily. And like, I've noticed that if I try to do some of the techniques, like in a grocery store, which, you know, like is a constant challenge, often just trying to like relax my shoulders and like, yeah. you know, like, like zoom out in a certain way, which is purely physical. It has nothing to do with like, I, like, I guess I have to make the decision to try to do that. But the thing that is actually helping is the physical transformation mm. more than the mental one. But even then you just get glimpses of it and then you're back in your own head, right. probably like judging and assessing how well you just did. What you, you right. know, like, did I do a good job? <laughs> right. Was uh, that? Like losing, like <laughs> destroying my ego briefly. You know? But Was that good yeah. Buddha? Was that good? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it is kind of amazing. Like, and it's just like this magical, like serenity that can, like that, that you can have and then it's gone but you can it's like it's real what he's talking about i think yeah i i think it is a virtue i think he is looking at a world in which people don't do this enough and and wanting people to do it but he just knows that that's not the way to say it or or I, maybe I, that's not the framework that he's working through but it's it's hard to not get a like a strong normative message here I agree, and I th and I think you summarized the two possibilities really well. It's like number one, that's not going to go over well right. if he like makes this sound like the other is that he really does ultimately see this in more existential terms and less in terms of practice and habit in the way that I think uh, is is a little like more consistent with Buddhist practice teachings in that, you know, you believe what you want, but do these things and like, you'll, st it'll start to appear. Even the, this is water thing you could interpret over and over again. Is this something like a ritualized thing where you're just trying to notice awareness is always around you all the time without you doing anything? Yeah. If you can just get yourself to do it, is it just like a, sorry, is it a ritualized form of meditation almost? Or is it something that each time you kind of renew your ability to choose? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know either. And, you know, like on one reading, it might just be exercise this ability more, that of not seeing yourself as the center of the universe. Do that more often and you'll see what happens. The problem is that we get thrust back into our own perspective routinely every single day. Like there are things that just, it matters that it is you and it's your thing and you have to take care of it. There are times when you have to be intensely focused on your own shit. And so, so I, I think that the reading of just pop out of it, just like every once in a while you have to relax your shoulders, you know, or your jaw. Yeah. Right. But what is absent here is like, join this community group. Yeah. He definitely wants to make this not tied to a specific religion, but right. it's coming from a very individualist right. perspective. You're right. You know? I, I, that, that thought half crossed my mind at some point when I was reading it, which was that there was a strikingly little discussion of actually engaging with other people. It was more of a put up with them in the right way. Like... That's what's so sad about this, yeah. too, is I think, like, he really believes this, but I really think his default settings, because he's so smart and kind of brilliant and also, like, has had deep, crippling depression, he was inside his own head more than most yeah. and 
and, and also in more destructive ways. And that probably limited even how he could conceptualize this idea. You know, like yeah. I think he he tried to like convert to Roman Catholicism a few times. He tried, like he tried, he was hungry for some of this, but I don't think just the way he was built. And I, I feel this too, to a large degree, like just not built for some sort of communal spiritual enterprise. Right. Um, Although sometimes I yeah. think that you you might join a cult eventually. <laughs> uh, I think like deeper down than my like <laughs> desire to like believe what like a lot of cults believe is like I have to retain my own autonomy. Your own you autonomy. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, I think this is one of the reasons that this is for me a very powerful uh, speech because he's not asking a lot. I would have been tempted to insert a whole bunch of things about the power of doing good in your community. And it would have been a much worse, <laughs> like much worse talk for many reasons, but I wouldn't be able to control my, my uh, oh, moralizing and tossing in everything like about the kitchen yeah. sink. Um, and so it's elegant in that sense. But it also is asking a lot. Right. Yeah. Like it's oh, saying, so yeah, he even on. says at the end, right? It's it's unimaginably hard to do this to stay conscious and alive in the adult world. Yeah, it's it's very good. This is water. This is, this water. is water. It's funny, like the the sort of I know I keep talking about this and nobody gives a shit, but like the kind of practice, and it actually comes from like a lot of the people that Sam Harris has on his app it, that I've been really influenced by lately and is really all about not cultivating awareness or mindfulness or like, be, uh, but just noticing the awareness that's already here, that's already there, always has been, and that doesn't require effort to 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 notice it, it what requires effort is to allow yourself to relax hmm. your uh, mind in a way that it just becomes obvious and that like this is water idea is is as good a parable of trying to express that as anybody like it's already here you're a fish you don't get that you're swimming in water because you always have it's very generation x religion it's like a it's a good example of it not in a bad way it's just like I, right, because it's still individualist to some degree. Yeah, even though yeah. The goal is to shatter the individual it, ego. It just—I feel some kinship with this perspective, just by just by due to being raised in this country at this time. The struggle yeah. is the kinship, yeah. Too. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, but yeah, millennials have different issues. <laughs> Very different. Um, they can't drive. Well, they can't yeah. drive stick for sure. Also, there are people offending them all the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, I love the the last sentence. I wish you way more than luck. That's great. Yeah, that's great. So, let's, dear listeners, I wish you way more than luck. We miss you. We, we, we miss you a merry mishmash. <laughs> we wish you way more than luck. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizard. Brain? You're a very bad...
just a very bad wizard.